I was going to start out and say disciple making is at the heart of everything we do here at NBC. Bang, you got it. Um, I'm going to get to speak with you, I think, six times over the course of this school year. And we're going to be focusing on disciple making and specifically the life and ministry of Jesus. I believe, it's my conviction, that not only did Jesus give us the command, the commission to go make disciples, but I also believe that Jesus was himself a disciple maker. Would anybody agree with me? I think he knew what he was talking about, and I think that it's a fair assumption that we can say that he modeled for us what he meant in his commission to us to make disciples. And so we're going to look at his life in different ways. The semester, um, this current semester, we're going to land in Matthew chapters 16 and 17. Today we're going to arrive in Matthew 16, but we're going to get there by the scenic route. So those of you who are already turning there, you're going to have to pause and back up because we're not going to start there. We're going to get there. I want to tell you a series of five stories this morning that are all connected. See if we can get this guy to roll. There we go. And uh, they are connected in two different ways. Number one, by a place. And secondly, by a theme. I'm going to just move here a little bit so I can see this as well. They are connected in those two ways. Now, our first backstory segment is a story about a choice. Thanks. The lights will help me. <laughs> a story about a choice. It'll get brighter as we go, I think, so we'll be all right. Did that come up? No, it's not working. I lost my remote, Robert. What happened? There we go. We'll see if it goes. It's a story about a choice. Now, you know that God delivered his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And you know that under the leadership of Moses, he led them through the desert. And then under the leadership of Joshua, he brought them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And they were to drive out and kill the inhabitants of the land as judgment from God. And I say, then what land are we talking about? Quickly, I want to zero in on that land from the world. We're talking about the land of Israel here. I think we have the uh, laser pointer there. This is a map of the inheritances of the tribes of Israel as they came into the land. And I want to draw your attention this morning to one specific little section right here, the inheritance for the tribe of Dan. This is what their inheritance was to be as they came into the land. I want us to pick up the story of this in the book of Joshua, chapter 19, verse 47. So if you want to turn there, Joshua 19, 47 is where I'm going to begin and pick up the story. It says this, But the Danites had difficulty taking possession of their territory. So they went up and attacked Leshem, took it, put it to the sword, and occupied it. They settled in Leshem and named it Dan after their forefather. Very creative name, right? Um, notice that the Danites had difficulty, it says. And when the going got tough, the Danites went looking for an easier way. Rather than trusting in God's promise, the Danites made a choice. It was a choice of compromise. They knew what God wanted them to do. But that seemed hard, so they went looking for something easier. And before we go any further, I want us to start drawing connection to our own life a little bit. I think that you and I know something about compromise, don't we? 
Of course, it's easier to see it in the lives of others. We could all raise our hand this morning if I said, how many of us know somebody who claims to be a Christian but whose life doesn't show that, doesn't back it up, right? We could all name somebody. And if you look at the church broadly in our culture, we can see that compromise is rampant. You can see, for example, that the Bible teaches that God created that all exists came to being through him. Or we can see that God clearly teaches that uh, all sexual relationships outside of marriage are sinful, or that marriage would be defined biblically as a lifelong union of one man and one woman. And all of that is unpopular in our culture. And so many times people go looking for an easier way. We are in a place of compromise, a culture of compromise. But you know that compromise gets closer to home than that, don't you? Look in your own heart for a minute. When's the last time you personally were tempted in your own heart to compromise? You knew what God wanted you to do, but that seemed hard. And then the easier path presented itself to you. So it may be easier to you know, make fun of a person rather than to stand up for what's right and to say, no, we're not going to do that. Or maybe it's easier to just go along with popular culture and TV and movies and video games and music and all of that and listen to that and fill your heart with what you know isn't what God wants your heart filled with versus godly things. I could go on and on with examples, but you know in your own heart, when's the last time you were tempted to compromise? I'm just trying to help you start to think about this theme and draw your heart to it. So our first story is a story about a choice of compromise. And it's a fascinating story. We move from there into our second story, which really is connected into the story about a place. More precisely, it's the story of how the Danites established what would become their place. I want you to skip ahead with me to the book of Judges, chapter 17. Now, you're not going to see the connection to the Danites at first, but don't worry, it's coming. Now, I have to move quickly here uh, for the sake of time, and so I can't take you through all of this story. But it's a crazy story, and let me just read for you the first little bit and get us going, and then I'll skim some from there. It says, Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. So, lovely beginning to a story, right? We have a son stealing from his mother. Great beginning. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. Not because he stole it, but I think because he's returning it, okay? He's confessing. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son. And watch this, to make a carved image and a cast idol, I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol and they were put in Micah's house. So now we have God's people walking straight into blatant idolatry. And it goes on. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. Is that God's prescribed way for priests? No, They've got the law. They should have known better, but that's not what they're doing. And it says in verse six, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And we go, yeah, no, duh. We can see it in this story. It's going to go on and it's going to tell us the story of how a young man who was a Levite from the tribe of Judah left that place and came to where Micah lived looking for a job, basically. And Micah went, oh, a Levite. 
He's from the right tribe. If I put him in as my priest, surely God will bless me now, even though my house is filled with blatant idolatry. (laughs) Very ironic, but he installs the priest as his priest. And if you were to read down through the story, you get that. Now, skip down to chapter 18, because now we're going to get to the Danites. And it says, in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And we know why. We just read it in Joshua. It seemed too hard for them. They didn't think they could do it. So they went looking for an easier place. That's where we pick up. So the Danites, it says, sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go explore the land. So they're looking for their easier option. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. The stories converge at this point where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. Because remember, he was from where they have been settled. So they know this guy from the past. They hear his voice, whoa. And they say... Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. Anybody want to take a guess as to whether that was really the voice of God? Um, I'll let you make up your own mind. So it says that they did that. And then they, they leave from there and they go and they look at the land and they spy out and they come to the city of Laish, which here is the tribe of Dan, their inheritance. They've been in Judah because they haven't come into that. They're going through Ephraim where they meet Micah and his house and the priest. And they go on up all the way north of the Sea of Galilee up here to the base of Mount Hermon where the city of Laish is. And that's where they discover a place for themselves. And it says, um, verse 7, so they, they left and came to Laish where they saw that the people were living in safety like the Sidonians, unsuspecting and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also, they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. In other words, they're an easy target. Got it? And so they go back and they say to everybody, come on, let's go attack them. This is the place for us. Let's do it. And it sounds... To me, a little bit like some of the reports that flowed back out of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Great land, lots of it, let's go get it. Um, There it is. Now, here is a picture of the city of Dan where they set up. This used to be Laish where they went and we already know they attacked it and conquered it. It's right at the base of Mount Hermon. And I show you this because the geography becomes important in our story as it goes. Here's a picture of Mount Hermon. Um, it's a beautiful, large mountain. This is um, right at the site of the city of Dan, and it's a beautiful place. I was just there in April of this year and took these pictures. And the, the city of Dan is located at one of three springs that form the principal sources of the Jordan River. And so they all flow out of the base of Mount Hermon. This is on the central one of those, and it's the largest of the springs. It's an amazing place. You walk up here and you can see right here the water flowing out, joining what really looks to us like a river. It's a lot of water. It's actually over 7 million gallons an hour flowing out of this thing. It's a major spring. But in a space of about a quarter of a mile, you walk up and there's this this whole series of springs. You're walking up this boardwalk and just water is flowing out from under you every so often. 
And literally a few hundred yards up here to the right, there would be no water at all. It's just there. It just right out of the ground. Here it comes. And so it's a lush place. You look at the vegetation around here. It's amazing. This grass is like, you know, giraffe grass stuff. I mean, it's incredible stuff that's growing around there. It's a rich, beautiful land. That's what they saw and they wanted it. It's a good place. Let's go get it. And so away they went and they captured the city. Now, I want to go back to the map with you for a moment. And I'm going to go quickly here. We're picking up in verse 11 of chapter 18 there. It tells us that they set out um, from where they had been down here in Judah and they start north to go capture it. On the way, they come to Micah's house where this young priest is, where they had met him earlier. They stop there and long story short, they rob the house. They plunder it. The 600 men all armed for battle come up to the gate and they're like, give us your stuff. We want your idols. And they take them all. And in addition, when the young priest says, whoa, 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 what are you guys doing? They say, we got a better deal for you, man. You come with us. You be our priest. You can be priest of a whole tribe, not just one family. And he goes, whoa, cash in that for me. I'm going. And he jumps on board with them and they all go up there. They kill all the inhabitants of the city. They take it and they settle there and they set up the idols. And it tells us at the end of that chapter, if you skip down, uh, say verse uh, 30, they named it Dan after their forefather, Dan, another very creative name, uh, who was born to Israel, though it used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity, captivity of the land. That's generations down. And they continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. They had the right option for worship. They chose to set up a compromised worship. So it's the story of how the Danites established for themselves a place. The choice that led them there was a choice of compromise. And then they established a place that became a place of compromise where they'll worship how they please rather than how God prescribed. So we have a choice a place of compromise. Our third story is a story about a voice. I want you to turn ahead with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're fast forwarding. We go past the time of the judges, past Israel's first king Saul, past King David to his son Solomon. And we're going to land there in 1 Kings 11. The beginning of the story tells us how Solomon married many wives, ultimately ended up building high places for them to worship their own gods how ultimately his own heart was turned away from God. And God then announces that he's going to tear the kingdom away. But for Solomon's, the sake of Solomon's father, David, he's going to leave one tribe yet for his son, who will be Rehoboam, as we know. And so we pick up the story in verse 28, chapter 11, verse 28. Now I'm going to, again, have to go very quickly. You basically can skim this story. I won't read it all. But what God says in summary, if you read from 28 down to 39, is that God is going to discipline Solomon and his line for turning away from him. It should be a huge wake-up call to them to turn back to God. When God disciplines them, he's going to strip away 10 of these kingdoms. And this is going to be given, these 10 kingdoms are going to be given to, or 10 tribes, I should say, given to Jeroboam, who was Solomon's servant, the, the chief of his labor force. And, and so he's going to give them to Jeroboam. And the prophet comes out and meets Jeroboam and tells him this. And so Jeroboam has the inside track into what God's going to do. 
And it's very interesting. Um, look at verse 37 there. This is God's word to Jeroboam. He says, however, as for you, Jeroboam, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David, my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. So it's supposed to be a temporary situation. Yes, the kingdom is going to be divided, and yet it's supposed to come back together. It's supposed to be temporary. So what happens? Here's the short version. If you keep on reading, um, Solomon hears about this. Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam flees to Egypt. Solomon dies. I'm going fast, right? Okay. Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king. Jeroboam returns from Egypt. The people rebel against Rehoboam. Only one tribe remains loyal to Rehoboam. The rest make Jeroboam their king. And so therefore, God's word has been fulfilled. Exactly what he said happened, or would happen, happens. So we say, then what will Jeroboam do with this opportunity that he's been given? A promise from God. If you do what I command, you've got it, man. I will raise up for you a dynasty as enduring as this one. He has it made. What will he do with his opportunity? Skip down to 1 Kings 12, verse 25. Here's what it says. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now, look at the map again. Here's Bethel and here's Dan up there. Here's Jerusalem. What has he done? <clears throat> Do you see his strategy? He thinks about it and he thinks the greatest unifying factor that could bring the people of Israel back together is their common worship of Yahweh. And, he, and he's right. So what is he going to do? He gets advice and he says, I'm going to set up an alternate form of worship, an alternate place for them to worship. And he sets up one in the south and one in the north of his territory. This is the southern kingdom of Judah down here. But this is Rehoboam's territory here, and he sets up one in each place. Do you hear what he said? I told you that the story was a story about a voice, and it's the voice of compromise. Do you hear what he said? It's too much for you. It's too hard for you. See, politicians think in terms of their power base and securing that and all. They don't speak that way. So he's thinking, how do I reunite the, or keep these people apart and keep my power base secure? But he says, oh, it's too hard for you. 
And think of that in light of what just had happened under Rehoboam, right? The people come to Rehoboam. Solomon made it hard on us, make it easier. Rehoboam got the wrong advice and said, no, I'm going to make it harder. So Jeroboam, the new king, comes in and says, oh, I'm going to make it easier on you. This is the voice of compromise. And it sounds like what the Danites had been doing from the very beginning of their story Oh, it was too hard for us to conquer that part of land. Let's go looking for something easier. And Jeroboam comes along and he makes it national, easier. And that leads us to, toward, I should say, our, our fourth story. We'll get there in a second, but I want to show you now. This is the high place at Dan. Um, I stood here and took this picture. This is... This metal piece is a replica of the altar that was there, the height of it, the size of it. You can see the foundation of it is all still there. You can see right here the steps leading up to it. If you look from the other side, here's a picture of the steps coming up to the altar. It's a big old altar. This is the high place that they set up at Dan. And you can still go there today and stand on the ruins. I was standing taking the first picture right here on these steps. And right behind me, up on top of the steps, if you walk up there, this is what you see. This is the highest place of the hill that is the city of Dan. And it's the big flat area right just 10 steps up from the altar, the place where after the sacrifices and all that are made that you go up to have your pagan revelry and your dancing and feast and all that. There it is, right there. And the Danites... We're happy to welcome that to their city. Sweet, more business for us. You know, sure, they've, they've compromised a long time ago. No big deal for them to do this at this point. And so we lead to our fourth story. Our fourth story is a story of progression. And you've already seen it happening, but I need to draw that out a little bit for you right now. When I sat right here and looked at this altar, I can't even hardly describe for you the feeling that came over me. It was just a feeling of sickness of like abhorrence, like I was sitting in an abandoned abortion clinic or something. I'm right here. I'm just sitting here and, and knowing that all of this worship of false gods had occurred right there and that they did human sacrifices, killed babies right there, that they worshiped demons right there. And I, I'm just sitting in this place like this feels dirty, bad, like there's just blood crying out from this ground. It just feels like that to me. Thousands of years later, sitting there looking at that. You've already seen the progression at work, but I need you to help draw these things together here. The Danites, you know, didn't trust God to bring them into their inheritance, and they made a choice of compromise. And it led them to set up this place given to compromise. And suddenly it's a whole city and a whole tribe of Israel that's given to that. And then it comes along later to Solomon. And Solomon chooses again to compromise in Israel as the king, as an example. And he didn't just, uh, you know, feed the lust of his flesh a couple of times and, you know, get unequally yoked or something. I mean, Solomon marries literally hundreds of foreign wives and he begins then to build high places for them. And, and he can do it all under the guise, the justification of, well, it's advantageous for our nation to make political alliances. Oh, and I, I'm not putting the high places in Jerusalem, just right outside. And 
it's just to appease these, these women and, and for the, the good of the national alliances. Yeah, you can always justify sin. But he wasn't, you know, leading the entire nation into sin. And yet, do you see that clear back there when the Danites made their choice of compromise, it was like they kicked off a rock that begins tumbling down the hill and it just picks up momentum and gets bigger and bigger. And Solomon comes along and does that and bang, bang, bang. I mean, he's kicking more and more rocks off of there and in it, the landslide gets bigger. And now Jeroboam comes along and what does Jeroboam do? He institutes idolatry nationally. Just let's go for it. The whole thing, we'll set up the places of worship and here are the golden calves and just worship them, people. The whole thing. It's a story of progression into compromise. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 7, you get a summary of all of this as it's going into destruction. And I just want to read part of this to you. It says, all this took place, the destruction of Israel, all this, because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel, i.e. Jeroboam, had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns, not just in Bethel and Dan anymore. You know it progressed beyond there. In all their towns, they set up sacred stones and asher poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations before them had done. And it goes on to tell how they sacrificed their children at the idols and did all of that evil, wicked stuff in the eyes of the Lord and brought judgment on themselves. The landslide picked up momentum and continued ripping down that hill, tearing up everything in its path until it finally lands in a big heap at the bottom. And the northern kingdom of Israel goes into captivity under Assyria in 722 BC and the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 to Babylon and they're raised to the ground. The story of compromise is a story of progression and I need us this morning to learn a powerful lesson here. And it's this. I put it up here. Small compromises turn into large compromises and result in catastrophic consequences. And it doesn't just happen nationally. It also happens personally. And you know of people whose lives have become a disaster. Small compromises lead to large compromises that lead to catastrophic consequences. I heard about another one just yesterday that's breaking my heart. Our first story was a story about a choice of compromise. We talk about a place of compromise, a voice of compromise, a story of progression. And then I'm going to bring you to our fifth story and we'll get there in, in just a moment. But before we do there, I want you to search your own heart again. Where are you tempted to compromise personally right now? We could talk nationally. We could talk as a church. We could talk as a Bible college. Just for yourself personally, where are you tempted to compromise. Where does that voice come to you and say, it's too hard for you to fill in the blank? It's too hard for you to get up early in the morning and read your Bible. <laughs> it's too hard for me to stand out as different as a witness at work. 
It's too hard for me to give up any of my money and give it away. It's too hard for me to think of missionary service. It's too hard for me to serve these people because it would require too much time and emotional strain on me. Fill in the blank. Where are we tempted to compromise? I want us to go to our fifth story for a moment and we'll wrap it up with this last story. It's a story about Jesus. And it begins in Matthew chapter 16. So if you think of it, you can turn there. You want to, um, that's fine. I want to show you the picture again because here is the city of Dan. And Matthew 16 starts out, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is right here. It's in the same picture. It's only a, whoop, wrong button. It's only a couple of miles apart from Dan. And by that time, Dan has ceased to exist. And Caesarea Philippi has become the capital city of Herod Philip. And it's, it's the center of paganism. We'll talk about that the next time that we get to have chapel together this way. Um, but it is the center in Jesus' day. And so Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, to this place that has for centuries been a place of compromise. And it certainly was in his day. And then it says this. When he came there, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we cheer with Peter right there. Yay, good answer. You know, he's got it. Yes. And Jesus confirms that. And I want you to skip down with me a little bit to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. Or maybe he yelled it. I don't know. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? And after he had successfully handled all of the temptations, what did it say? Satan left him, what? For an opportune time. This is one of those opportune times. When Satan comes back and Peter unwittingly becomes the mouthpiece of Satan and, and says, no, 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 dear Jesus, don't go through that bad idea. And Jesus says, whoa, that did not come from God. That was straight from Satan. And Jesus stood in the face of temptation all the way through, from the beginning of his ministry, the very start of it, the, the temptations in the wilderness, right here, you know that this is just six to nine months from when he will be in the Garden of Gethsemane, the ultimate moment of opportune time where Satan can tempt him one last time. Don't go through with it. And you remember what Jesus prays that night? Yet not as I will, but as you will. He resisted beginning to end. And you know that you and I, all of us in our fallenness, we're prone to compromise. And, and Jesus stood strong in the face of compromise. And really, it's 
as simple as this, the antidote to compromise is to stand strong. How? We're going to end with this. How? Jesus did it, yes, and he modeled it for us, yes. How? He modeled it for us all the way through. Now, think Ephesians 6 with me for a moment, right? Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. And, And it goes on and he uses that you may stand, stand strong then. It goes on and on with Standing fast in that with what? Belt of truth buckled around your waist, breastplate of righteousness in place, faith, salvation, helmet of the um, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and petitions. I was going to read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, I'm not. Ephesians 6, think of that. Jesus modeled that for us, didn't he? That's what he did. You look in his life, truth. The word of God, think of those temptations in Luke chapter 4. He quotes scripture back to Satan every time. Prayer, think of the Garden of Gethsemane and and many, many other times in Jesus' life. He modeled that for us to fight that fight. Dependence on God's spirit. For those of us who know Christ, we have his spirit to indwell us, to live inside of us. We can resist compromise through the power of His Spirit living in us. We abide in that vine, as John 15 says, walking close to Christ, His life in us. It's really a story of victory. The human story is the story of compromise. Our Savior comes and shows us what it looks like to stand fast in the face of compromise. And as we begin talking disciple-making, I began here with this look at Jesus who stands fast all the way through and shows us what that looks like. So as you think of your following Christ, we say, show me how it's done, Jesus. I'm going to walk in those steps. Let me pray for you and we'll dismiss you to lunch. Father, thank you for this morning and uh, we pray that we will stand fast and never ever fall. When we fall into compromise, it hurts disciple-making. It hinders disciple-making. It halts disciple-making. And so for our disciple-making to be strong and to flow and to become effective, God, we pray that you will protect us from the evil that is all around us and even, yes, within us. Let us stand fast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. We're dismissed for lunch.